2: Home Abstract and Title Company was founded in 1867 and is the oldest company still operating in McLennan County. Home Abstract is comprised of a team of honest, friendly, hardworking professionals dedicated to providing both commercial and residential real estate clients with the highest level of communication and service. Their team is committed to working hard and building and maintaining strong relationships because transactions are so much more than just deals. They are clients deserving of the courtesy Care and respect that Home Abstract and Title Company is known for. Visit Home Abstract and Title Company at homeabstract.com. Cross the Brazos
3: and Waco. Write hard and I'll make it by dawn. Cross the Brazos and Waco. I'm safe when I reach seven.
2: Okay. Welcome back to the Waco History Podcast. We are continuing our Crossroads series and there's only one guest that we could bring in for this particular Crossroads that we're going to talk about, Rick. And what, we,
0: you, what what are we talking about today?
2: Well, that's I'm going to let you introduce okay. the topic and our guest. Yeah. Well, uh, I'll
0: do that. So uh, we're, we're going to talk about the criminal crossroads of Texas. You know, any, any great uh, crossroads town is going to have a lot of great criminal history. And unfortunately, great an exclamation! We, we have our share of that. that uh. And uh, in order to talk about this subject uh, in depth, we've invited Sheriff Parnell McNamara to join us. He's been the McLennan County Sheriff. I uh, was elected in 2012, started in January 2013. Uh, welcome.
1: Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Good to be here. Thank you guys. It's great having you here.
2: Uh, you know, we'd love to start out, Sheriff, with just uh, your family has a a long Waco history, a long Texas history. would love to hear just a little
1: bit about your family background here in Waco. Sure. Um, family came over from Ireland in the 1870s and <laughs> settled in the Bosqueville area. Uh, my great-grandparents had uh, six sons and a daughter. Uh, my grandfather uh, was Emmett Parnell, and uh, he was a deputy sheriff here in 1905 and then went with U.S. Marshals. Uh, His brother, Guy McNamara, was the one that actually started our family in law enforcement in 1902. He was elected constable here, and then was appointed chief of police in 1915, and then in the early 30s, uh, President Roosevelt appointed him the head United States Marshal for the Western District of Texas, which went from Centerville to El Paso. And then my father, T.P. McNamara, was... uh, the chief deputy sheriff here in the early 30s uh, i think he was hired on when he was 21 years old and then he served in that capacity for a number of years and then in 1942 he was hired on as a deputy united states marshal and he served in that capacity for uh, right at 37 years so anyway uh, my brother and i mike my brother um, We were hired as part-time guards for the U.S. Marshals in January of 1963. Uh, I was 16; my brother was 15, and uh, couldn't do that today. But uh, that's a we we call those internships now. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. Well, it was pretty good on-the-job training. But we were guards for my father, and um, I was a senior at Richfield High, and Mike was a junior. So we would help my dad uh, transport prisoners to El Reno, Leavenworth, Kansas. We'd make arrests with him. We didn't have a badge or an ID, but we had guns. And he had us on the firing range all the time. So he was the only deputy U.S. marshal uh, in the 13-county area that Waco took, uh, took care of. So he needed guards, and mm-hmm. he got permission from the U.S. Department of Justice to use us as guards. And so they said, well, TP, your boys are awfully young. And he said, I know that, but I never have to worry about where they're going to be. They're going to be right there with me. Mm -hmm. So they they agreed to let us on. So for about eight years, uh, Mike and I worked as...
0: Did they count that time towards your retirement uh, time?
1: Absolutely not. (laughs) (laughs) So anyway, I wish they had. (laughs) But um, then uh, when Mike and I graduated from Baylor... I actually graduated in 69, uh, took an extra year pre-law and real estate. And then in my graduated in 70. So right out of Baylor, uh, both of us hired on with U.S. Marshals as deputies in October of 1970. And so this October will be 53 years of in law enforcement. And if you count my guard time, you can maybe 58. But <laughs> we'll count it here. We'll, 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 we'll apply to your I appreciate record. that. But anyway, uh, we were off and running and the first seven years of our career was just absolutely incredible because uh, we were assigned to the Waco office. So it was my right. dad and my brother and me in the Waco U.S. Marshals office. And then that new law where at the time, if you had 20 years of service and you were 55 years old, you had to retire. Mm. So he was 67, it got hundreds and hundreds of good U.S. Marshals. And uh, a few years later, they bumped it up to 57. So uh, age 57 got me in 2003 and got my brother in 04. So Mm. you have to retire the last day of the month, you turn 57. So I turned 57 April 29th, so I got one more day. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) It was bad. It was sad. Uh, You know, 57, I was not ready to retire. Uh, I was mad about it. Uh, You get hurt. A lot of people want to leave, Uh, but uh, Mike and I did not. We loved our job, and uh, there's still a standing joke that there's claw marks on the carpet of the U.S. Marshals office where they had to drag me out. And um, (laughs) I had uh, 14 boxes of memorabilia that had been built up from the days when my dad was in the office. We had a lot of his things. And so I had a pickup truck full and had to leave my credentials and my badge on the desk. And Mm -hmm. that was a bad feeling, uh, leaving a building where I had worked for almost 33 years and uh, the only identification I had was my driver's license and my Sam's card when I walked across I, I, the street. Where are the offices, U.S. Marshal offices in Waco? They were on the third floor of the U.S. Post Office, corner of 8th and Franklin. Okay, okay. That's yeah. where they all were. So. And they, that's where they still are. Mm-hmm. So anyway, uh, I was retired and then uh, ran for sheriff and got it. And so here I am. I'm still in the fight. Ah, I'm too great. young to retire. So, <laughs> That's great. Now, anyway,
0: now I've always I've always said the McNamara's are thick in Bosqueville. I mean, yeah. there's a lot of them, and uh, you, uh, there, there's been other McNamara's in the history of Waco that have been engaged in law enforcement or in the justice right. system, um, besides the ones you mentioned.
1: Right, um, John McNamara, uh, John B. McNamara, uh, who is was the son of the original. John, uh, that was um, the county attorney here, uh, he went with the FBI in 1942, was transferred immediately to New York, Mm. assigned to Harlem, and uh, he stayed a few years with the FBI. Mm. And he went, I believe, he hired on the same year, the same month that my dad hired on with U.S. Marshals, and they were first cousins. Mm. So there's been... Uh, You know, been some other McNamara's in law enforcement.
2: Yeah, yeah.
1: Great, great. Um, Well, tell us a little bit about the
0: Sheriff's Department. Um, You know, I think most people uh, recognize that you got police departments, you got Sheriff's departments, you got constables, you got U.S. Marshals, and so uh, Texas Rangers. Where where does, uh, in law enforcement, where does the Sheriff's Department fit in?
1: The Sheriff's Department is the premier uh, law enforcement agency in the county and uh, we have broad jurisdiction. We have jurisdiction out in the county and also inside the city, cities that are in our county. Um, the McLennan County Sheriff's Office, we have close to 500 employees. We now, uh, give or take, we'll have 14 to 1,500 prisoners in our two jails. Um, We're serving 4,000 to 4,500 meals a day, Mm -hmm. and uh, we have uh, a lot of guys out on patrol. And when I say guys, I mean men and women. We have Mm -hmm. some great uh, female deputies, Um, and we try to have 10 officers on each shift. Uh, A few years ago when I was with U.S. Marshals, uh, we worked very closely with the McLennan County Sheriff's Office and they may only have two officers on patrol. Oh, wow. So we beefed that up quite a bit. And uh, we've done a lot of things since we came in. And very seldom do I say I because I'm a spoke in the wheel. I like mm-hmm. to say we because mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a team effort. I have a great team in there. But uh, we have initiated a lot of things that weren't being done. Uh, we didn't have a narcotics unit. Uh, to investigate drugs. And everybody knows that drugs and dope uh, is the head of the snake. You know, almost every crime is somehow related. They're either on dope or they're trying to get money for it. And um, so we formed a narcotics unit. Uh, We also formed a cold case unit in uh, 2017 to investigate brutal murders that happened years ago. We have solved, I believe, nine And some of them going back as far as 1982, a murder of a beautiful girl in Axtell walking home from a party. She was picked up by this thug. And uh, he abused her and beat her and shot her in the head and the chest and uh, threw her in a ditch. And uh, it was unsolved for um, over 40 years. Hmm. So... We have a lot of other homicides that we've been able to solve, and uh, we formed a uh, human trafficking unit Mm -hmm. to go after these pimps and scumbags that are trafficking uh, these uh, unsuspecting uh, women, underage kids. We've gone after the predators that are looking, you know, to... uh, Get hooked up and have sex with underage kids mm. as low as young as 10, 12 years old. Mm. Even one guy wanted a four year old and a toddler. Mm. <clears throat> so when he showed up, he was arrested. Uh, we filed on him federally because of the age, and uh, he'll be an old man by the time he gets yeah. out of federal prison. Yeah, I think that's that's uh, uh, you guys have re- received a um, – Take a
2: break. Oh, he All wanted right.
1: to
0: just
2: take a second. Hold a, a second. second. <coughs> yep.
1: Excuse me. Oh yeah, no problem. Allergies
0: killing me. <laughs> hey, Man, you. and we're making you talk a lot.
2: Well, that, that's the hazard of being a guest on this show. <laughs> uh, we're gonna make you talk a lot. Okay.
1: <clears throat> Sorry about that. I may. Okay. Yeah, yeah. You can call time out anytime. So okay. I got a
2: follow-up question related. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Today. You, go, you okay. go. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so, Sheriff particularly those task forces and, and areas of investigation that you talked about. It does seem, you know, this idea of crossroads about where Waco is in the state. I mean, some of these are these are moving through human trafficking and, and narcotics and other things are, are moving through the county and other places. How is Waco positioned to kind of operate uh, in uh, law enforcement and those sorts
1: of areas, yeah? Waco is in a perfect position for that. You know, Mm -hmm. it's 100 miles south of Dallas, 100 miles north of Austin, right on the I-35 corridor, which is the main thoroughfare coming up from the border on up to the northern states. And so we're getting human trafficking coming down, you know, from Dallas, uh, Fort Worth, different places. Uh, We've got them coming up from Austin. We've had Uh, Some of these uh, traffickers bringing girls in from Arkansas. Uh, We have tied some of the uh, criminals back to a big organization out of New York. Mm. We've had our our guys uh, running search warrants with uh, the New York police. We've had them in Las Vegas. Uh, We ran search warrants on houses in Las Vegas. That we're trafficking the young girls uh, right here in Waco, mm-hmm. and also Austin. I mean, it's it's like a huge mm-hmm. network spider web uh, all across the country, mm-hmm. and so it's not just local, but they are coming in here trafficking some of our local right. people. Mm-hmm. So we hit them all as hard as we possibly can. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, <clears throat> it's kind of the ugly side of being a crossroads yeah. town, really. And yeah, it is. Um, and that plays into maybe some of the historical record too, if if we want to uh, jump into that a little bit. Um, I, I did find uh, so so McLena County chartered uh, eighteen forty nine. Our first sheriff was a was a gentleman named Robert Holm, and if you remember when we've looked at, uh, 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 we we've read the handbook or you know the history where um, Erath was talking about it was just him and. Shapley Ross and a few other guys standing around going, okay, uh, we need, somebody needs to be the county judge. So, you know, they were all mm-hmm. kind of volunteering for whatever positions they needed to have. Who knows? I, I don't know whether Holm just volunteered or if he was really had that <laughs> in his heart, but uh, he was our first acting sheriff. And then um, I love the fact that probably one of our most famous or accomplished sheriffs was Saul Ross. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, you want to tell us a little bit
1: about Saul? Absolutely. What an incredible guy. Saul Ross was a young ranger uh, in 1860 when they had the famous um, peace river fight with the Comanches. And uh, the rangers were able to defeat the Comanches, and they recovered a couple of people that they realized uh, were Caucasian. And one of them happened to be uh, Cynthia Ann Parker. Mm-hmm. And they did not know exactly who she was at the time, but they recognized her because she had blue eyes, and she almost got shot because it was a running gun battle between the, the uh, Rangers and the uh, Comanches, and so uh, Sol Ross was uh, very active in bringing uh, Cynthia Ann Parker uh, back to her family, and uh, anyway, it's uh, it's always been a question whether she wanted to come back or not. She. Was captured when she was like seven years old, and uh, then when she was recovered, she'd been with the Indians, I believe, 23 years. Yeah, yeah. and so she was totally Indianized, as they called it at the time, and uh, assimilated into the tribe. Uh, she was married to uh, a warrior named Pita Nakona, and Some say he was killed in the fight, some say he wasn't, but her son became a very famous uh, Comanche leader uh, and chief uh, named Quanah Parker. And then at the end of the Indian Wars in uh, the late 1870s, Quanah Parker was very uh, instrumental in getting a lot of the captives back that the uh, Indians had, had captured over the years, and so he became a friend of a lot of people, uh, a lot of the ranchers. Um, in fact, uh, Samuel Burke Burnett, that has a big four sixes ranch, mm-hmm. uh, was befriended uh, Quana Parker. And inside the big house on the ranch, um, <clears throat> Quana Parker was their guest several times, as well as President Teddy Roosevelt and all that. And so Parker became friends with the president and uh, has been photographed in some of the parades with Teddy Roosevelt. Mm. A very interesting story to be a Comanche war chief. And then later on, and he was very instrumental in trying to calm down the uh, friction between the Indians and and the settlers and all, you know, and the army, the cavalry to try to make peace. Yeah, yeah, he
0: he had an impressive life too. Almost the uh, the counterpoint to Sol Ross actually from the from the Indian perspective, you know, just uh, like like you said, he uh, went from a warrior to, to uh, being a statesman
1: for the the Indian right. nations that were in, Absolutely. in Oklahoma. So, mm-hmm. um, I'll continue about Ross for just yeah, a yeah. minute. Yeah, yeah, keep going about Sol Ross. <laughs> yeah. Such an interesting uh, Character, uh, unbelievable guy. Um, he became a brigadier general in the Confederate Army during the Civil War, and then he was sheriff of McLennan County in the early 1870s. And he was the one responsible for forming the uh, Texas County Sheriffs Association, hmm. and uh, that was in 1874. They had the first meeting in Carson and he called that. And I think uh, close to a hundred Texas sheriffs at the time showed up, and that is a huge association now. Uh, <clears throat> they have conferences every year in Dallas, Fort Worth, San Antonio, and several thousand members. So anyway, Sol Ross uh, was uh, <coughs> excuse me. <clears throat> he was later elected governor of Texas, and Sol Ross University. I believe in Alpine's also named after him. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's also buried uh, in uh, Oakwood Cemetery right here in Waco. Mm-hmm. But what a, an unbelievable guy. What an unbelievable career. And he is the only Texas sheriff that has ever been elected governor of Texas. So far. The only county uh, sheriff.
2: So far, sheriff. I don't know if, <laughs> if you're looking for a third career. <laughs> Uh, uh, let yeah. me
1: let me make it clear. I'm certainly not. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah, fascinating character. Yeah. yeah. So, so
0: you mentioned earlier uh, the Chisholm Trail, and um, <clears throat> uh, you can imagine early on Texas frontier. A lot of the a lot of the people that would go to work mm-hmm. or even come out to live on the frontier or or work in the cattle drive business weren't the most savory characters, right? I mean, they were, they might have been running from something. They're living on the edges of society for a reason.
1: Well, that that's very true. And um, in the late 60s and, and certainly early 70s, there was a real demand for leather and also beef um, in northern United States. Mm-hmm. And at that time, the railheads did not come down past uh, Wichita, Kansas, and Abilene, Kansas. So to get the cattle that were needed up north, uh, they had to be driven at least as far as Kansas. And so at the time, uh, after the Civil War, there were millions of free-roaming Texas Longhorns, which were across between uh, Mexican cattle and other breeds. But they were very hardy and tough, and they still are. Uh, mm-hmm. Texas Longhorns are still an incredible breed of cattle mm-hmm. and uh, certainly an iconic breed. But <clears throat> these cattle were rounded up by cattle outfits, cowboys that were farmed for the purpose of the cattle drives. And so they would round up two to three, sometime 4,000 of these cattle in South Texas and start moving them north. And so at some point they had to cross the Brazos River to get on the east side to go on north to the railheads in uh, kansas and they'd have to go through the indian territory in oklahoma and it was a very dangerous time <clears throat> so when the suspension bridge was completed in 1870 it gave a way uh for the cattle to be crossed to be moved across the brazos right here in waco and you probably heard uh, Billy Walker's song "Cross the Brazos" at Waco, mm-hmm. and uh, it's actually our song yeah.
2: for the podcast. So they heard it, they heard it right now oh, before we started that. talking. Yeah, I yeah, know that. I yeah. love that song. Yeah, I do too. It's, it's yeah. as good yeah. as you get. Yeah.
1: So <laughs> uh, anyway, that um, that's where all the herds uh, would kind of culminate here in Waco, and cross the the river on the suspension bridge, because a lot of the river crossings, unless they had a real rocky uh, bottom the mm-hmm. cattle, uh, you know, could bog down or they would drown, and the the outfits were losing a lot of cattle in the rivers, uh, especially if they were on a rise. So, this was a unbelievable thing to happen to have this suspension bridge right right here in Waco, and at the time it was the longest single spanning bridge west of the Mississippi when it was built. Mm-hmm. And so, anyway, I think the guy that. The man that built it was the one that built the Brooklyn Bridge mm-hmm. in New York, and right. so anyway, they designed it Roebling, right? Yeah, yes. a lot of
2: the the material that was supplied for the bridge came from the Roebling Company. Yes, yeah, that's
1: mm-hmm. correct. Mm-hmm. And Anyway, then they would move the herds on north, and uh, uh, Fort Worth was the final point to get all your supplies uh <clears throat> before you cross the red river into mm-hmm. indian territory and then on to kansas and so the crescent prairie outside of fort worth at any given time they said would have 8 to 10 to 15,000 longhorns milling around while the outfits went into fort worth to get mm-hmm. their supplies of gunpowder or ammunition mm-hmm. or beans hard and bread tack. and hardtack yeah, all yeah. of that mm-hmm. and uh, anyway then on to Kansas, and uh, usually it took three to four months from South Texas uh, to get to Kansas. Hmm.
0: Well, in the, in the historical record, uh, the one infamous uh, uh, outlaw that that came across was John Le- John Wesley Hardin. So mm-hmm. it's a name you know a lot of people have heard from the Old West. So he was one of those guys who did the Chisholm Trail uh, several times, and um, he has a uh, a tangent connection. A lot of his crimes were not committed in Waco. But uh, in 1871, um, he was arrested in Marshall, Texas, for the murder of a Waco city marshal. A guy named Laban John Hoffman was the, the city marshal. And, uh, you know, I don't know if that happened while he was on a cattle drive or not. Mm-hmm. But, but interestingly enough, they, they arrested him. And they were trying to transport him back to Waco. A couple of Texas state policemen were escorting him. And uh, he managed, he had a gun hidden away, and managed to uh, kill one and ride off. Um, and, and he was only 17 year, years old at the time, and went on to have, uh, you know, a lot more outlaw experiences beyond that, mm-hmm. but uh, that was
1: John Wesley Hardin's Waco connection. A very, very dangerous individual, mm-hmm. and was only in his teens, kind of like Billy the Kid, you know, mm-hmm. just uh, very ruthless. Yeah. Um, didn't really have a regard for anyone.
0: Claims he kill he claims he killed over 42 people in his his lifetime. Mm
1: -hmm. Uh, We're not sure about the number, but it very well could be. We know he killed a lot of people. And uh, if you looked at him wrong, uh, he'd gun you down. Hmm. Hmm.
2: So Sam Bass is also uh, a name that's pretty infamous in Texas.
0: Yeah, there's another um, um, uh, outlaw. So not too much further in 1878, he got his start. Uh, well, actually, I, I found he'd been to Waco in 1875. We talked about on the other podcast about entertainment or, or, or uh, com- competitions in Waco, right? Our sports episode. Mm-hmm. And horse racing was kind of one of the first big, um, I don't know, competitions. It's not really an athletic event, so to speak, but uh, horse yeah, and, racing. And
2: the track was out where Oakwood is now is where the racing track it was
0: yeah. for horses. So somewhere along the way, a young Sam Bass got his hands on a pretty good racehorse, and was going through Texas and winning uh, quite a bit. But, the, you know, like all good horses, they, uh, they, they, all good athletes, they, they got a shelf life, and his horse wouldn't win in much at some point. <laughs> he ends up um, uh, forming a gang, and they go, uh, they go rob a gold train coming through Big Springs, Nebraska, in 1877 and at the time netted $60,000 in gold coins.
2: That's a lot of money. In
0: 1877 that, that back then
1: yeah. that would be a yeah. fortune today. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So that probably encourages you to keep doing it, right? If you're if you hit it big the first time
1: it's kind of like going to Vegas. You, Absolutely, he was doing something right. <laughs> he hey, that's not the message. That. That's not the
2: message we're trying I to project. It doesn't
0: pay well. It kind of did for a little bit, but it, it all. You all know good what? Things I mean. come to an end, don't they? <laughs> and so, um, they, he got chased around. Right? They they tried to to um, started trying to rub some stagecoaches and some other stuff. Ended up back in North North Texas, and um, so here's where he crossed through Waco again. Um, he, he and what was left of his gang were, were making their way south and they came through um, came through Waco, sure because they crossed the bridge, everything. but they were gonna they were gonna uh, knock over a bank while they were here. Mm. That was their intent. Mm-hmm. Now he didn't know one of his um, one of his gang had already made a deal with the Texas Rangers and he was supposed to uh, he was an informant right He was let, an yeah. informant. He was gonna let them know, um, mm-hmm. you know where they were going to be, so they could catch up to him and uh, get get uh, bass. So, so he's trying to di- he dissuades Bass from actually hitting the bank here in Waco, um, and uh, but but before he leaves while he's in town, spends his last gold coin from that robbery
1: <laughs>
0: that original ro- at the saloon at one of the saloons here in town. It would uh, be
1: nice to know what saloon that was. Yeah, nice wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um,
0: And so, July nineteenth, um, you know, a few days later, they made their way down to Round Rock, and along the way, his uh, his informant in the gang got the, got word to the um, uh, to the Rangers, and that's where they had the gunfight that took out Sam Bass in Round Rock, mm. Texas.
1: He also had a cave that he was hiding out in the Salado area, and mm. the cave is still there, and you can uh, go visit the cave. It's almost right downtown in Salado. Oh, wow. So very interesting. I've been in the cave when I was a kid. <laughs> did you find <laughs> any it, gold maybe, coins in there? Oh, did <laughs> no, I didn't find any. He either. didn't have any left by Anything then. around? He, he, yeah.
2: he bounced his last <laughs> check. That's my goal
0: <laughs> is the last
2: check needs to bounce. Yeah.
0: Well, yeah, he did time it right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, so, and, and I'm sure there, there were a lot more, um, um, uh, criminal goings on Sure. in, in between 78 and our next, uh, encounter we'll talk about, but, uh, you know, we're trying to talk about the big ones here, mm-hmm. the, the nationally known or things that were of, of a greater, um, exposure beyond just Waco. Uh, so the next one, uh, Judge Gerald, um. And, and this was related to you explain how these are all related real quick
2: uh yeah we we talked a little bit uh, about this in the entertainment episode right yesterday did we talk about just gerald yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah Jeff gerald yeah and so um uh, I don't know what you're going for. What, how do you want me to connect? <laughs> well,
0: he he was connected to the, to Brand. So, right, he mm-hmm. was one of Brand's supporters. Yeah. So explain who, who Brand was. Yeah,
2: so William Cowper Brand, who is uh, the the editor and author of the uh, Iconoclast here in town, that was which was a nationally distributed newspaper. Um, and uh, Brand was was famous nationally, sometimes controversial locally uh, because he he sometimes liked to uh, attack um, maybe things that that people didn't want attacked. We actually got an episode on the podcast on Bran himself because uh, he would attack maybe some sacred cows and things like that. And sometimes he would expose things that were covered up that needed to be talked about and looked at. And uh, he was a very controversial figure. In fact, when we did our Oakwood uh, cemetery episode, Bran is the only headstone in Oakwood that someone's taken a shot at. Uh, so he's <laughs> he's uh, he's still still proves to be yeah, a uh, he'd be the equivalent today
0: of an, an internet troll.
2: Yeah, that's what Randy Lane called him as Waco's first troll. Yeah. yeah, yeah,
1: and if you look at the definition of iconoclast, yeah, uh, it spells it out, says a person who attacks cherished beliefs or institutions. Yep. And of course in this case he was uh talking about Baylor and the Baptist and uh a lot of other people. Mm-hmm. Um and so his newspaper basically stated what its purpose was. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. Yeah, and some of that needed to be <laughs> some of that is a good thing. Right. Yeah. We the all pin, need accountability, yeah, but it's uh, on who you <laughs> ask and yeah. how you do it. Yeah. So
0: so uh to, to set the stage, Bran had he'd, he had ignited some fervor by, uh, won't get into the whole details of, of what that was about, but he'd been recently um, kidnapped by <coughs> some Baylor, male Baylor students who were wanting to defend the honor of their college and the females at their college. And they had, uh, they, they had threatened to tar and feather him. That didn't work out. They roughed him up a little bit. You know they end up letting him go, um, with without doing too much damage. But I'm sure that you know scared him quite a bit. And uh, Judge Gerald, who uh, was one of his supporters here in town, he he actually uh, had a great. We we mentioned Ross a minute ago, but uh, Mm -hmm. Gerald uh, had been in uh, the Civil War. He was a colonel, had been wounded four times. He actually had a lame arm coming out of that. He had come to Waco in 1873. He, he had a, he had a legal background but he also uh, did some some newspaper he owned some newspapers did some uh, editing there but he was elected county judge in 1876 and uh, held that office for eight years also served in the legislature served as a state center you know postmac uh, was appointed postmaster for Waco so he was an accomplished guy
2: mm-hmm.
0: and um,
2: but felt strongly but, about his supportive brand yeah yeah,
0: yeah what I read about him, I mean, he, he was kind of the same cloth. He was mm-hmm. kind of a yeah. aggressive and gruff kind of guy and kind of tell it like it is. And, uh, um, so after, after Bran had been kidnapped, uh, uh, Gerald wanted to get something in one of the local papers, kind of a, a supportive editorial. And, uh, the owners of those papers were the uh, Harris brothers and somewhere in there, the Harris brothers wouldn't print what he'd sent mm-hmm. and he wanted to get it back. And, and that led to a uh, a conflict.
2: Yeah, a shootout between uh, Gerald and the Harris brothers, and uh, Gerald loses his lame arm. So he gets shot, I guess, in his lame arm and has to lose that. and the, And the Harris brothers don't survive uh, the it, encounter.
1: Exactly. Um, let me back up just a hair. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Fill in um, some gaps. <clears throat> before the shootout, um, the. I believe it was Tom Harris and, and uh, Judge Gerald had a fist fight uh, on the street, and uh, Gerald got whipped. And so uh, he was pretty mad about it, so he started handing out circulars. He calling, only had one hand. He only had one arm, to be fair, right? Okay. You're fighting yeah. a one-armed okay. guy. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so anyway, he was handing out these uh, flyers calling harris a liar a coward and a cur and challenged him to a duel in the middle of the street and so that's what led up to the gunfight he had gotten his you know what whipped uh-huh. and so he was he was mad about it so here came both harris brothers and uh they came out second in the gunfight and that's never a good thing uh-huh. But uh, both of them were killed and Judge Gerald was wounded. But it started with a fist fight where they beat up uh, the judge. And I guess, you know, he was an underdog because he only had one, one arm. And mm-hmm. uh, they took advantage of that. So, anyway, that's kind of what led up to the gunfight.
2: But then reelected as judge in the next election. <laughs>
1: Absolutely. That's a. That's how, how could you not reelect him? <laughs> everybody, everybody, I'd vote for him. Yeah. <laughs> so ironically,
0: I mean, we're 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 sitting in the 20th floor of the Alco Building, looking out the window. Right next to us is Third and Austin, uh-huh. which is the scene of that gun battle. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're yeah. we're right here. Uh, one of the quotes, um, and I don't uh, if I remember the kind of the play by play of the of the fight. Uh, Gerald and the first brother kind of ran into each other and then they quickly kind of pulled on each other and, and started shooting. The other brother was across the street, saw what was going on. So he, he started shooting at the judge and, um, the judge turned and fired, fired one shot and put him down. Mm. And so as the judge was recovering, um, he asked one of the people uh, that was taking care of him, um, you know, um, I don't remember that Harris brother's name, but, uh, you know, where did I hit him? And they said, well, you hit him in the right in the throat. And, uh, they, you know, that killed him. And he goes, well, I was aiming for his head. <laughs> so he was, he was a little dis- disappointed in his Bullet so, dropped dropped bit. Yeah, so, Yeah, I
2: could see the election posters now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was aiming for his head. Uh, you mentioned uh, brands. The brand shootout takes place uh, nearby. I mean, just um, yeah. over over at F- Fourth and Austin, and there is a there is a uh, historic marker there that you can see, uh, kind of on the side of the city building, or the WISD building there on Franklin, that kind of marks uh, near the location of that uh, shootout. And we talked about this on the the that podcast, but. In that case, Bran had offended uh, the propriety of some of the young ladies at at, uh, Baylor University, and a gentleman took, uh, uh, Tom Davis, is that his name? Yeah, Tom Davis took offense at that, and uh, um, they passed each other on the sidewalk, and uh, Davis took a shot uh, at Bran brand turned and fired at Davis and they both were mortally wounded in the shootout mm-hmm. and passed away there.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. And my, uh, my grandfather, uh, Emmett Parnell McNamara happened to be in town. He was like 17 or 18 and happened to witness the shooting. And he would talk to us about it. He said he'd never seen a man get killed before mm. and really disturbed him. And, uh, he later became a deputy sheriff in 1905 and then went with U.S. Marshals. But that yeah. was a very early uh, experience for him. Yeah. You know, he never forgot. But mm-hmm. um, I'm pretty sure it was the Brand Davis shootout that he saw. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I 1898, mean, so that, yes. that, that, that fits. He was born in 1880, so he would have been 18, mm-hmm. 17, 18. Well, and because the
0: iconoc- iconoclast was, was a you know, national and a little bit international, right? Yeah. I mean, he had a pretty yeah. wide uh, readership for his uh, his periodical or whatever you would call it at the time. Mm-hmm. So uh, him getting gunned down in this battle, I mean, that was national news.
2: Yeah, definitely.
1: Sure was. But
2: uh, And we're, we're starting to see why Waco had that moniker Six Shooter Junction uh, here with violence in the streets around the turn of the century.
1: Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And at the time, apparently – Uh, Dueling in Texas was legal, Mm -hmm. or at least they didn't think much about it. Um, Two men walk out in the street. They have a gunfight. One of them doesn't come back, and uh, it was okay. Um, On my grandfather's deputation papers uh, in 1905, he had, in his oath of office, he had to swear that he had not been involved in a duel with (laughs) deadly weapons or acted as a second in a duel nor had he carried a challenge to a duel which if he had meant that he'd kill somebody on the street in a duel. Uh-huh. So <clears throat> that was in 1905 and then he was deputized again under a different sheriff in 1916 and that is even on the oath of office in 1916. Wow, that's an yeah, amazing. I got, got both of them. I got one right here, but I have both of them on the wall in the office, but it's just uh, uh, very unusual to mm-hmm. see that. Uh, so I wonder when that
2: fades out. I mean, that surprises me in 1916. Yeah. I yeah. wonder when that fades out as a practice. And yeah. actually, you offended me earlier, Rick. So uh,
0: <laughs> I don't know if you'll be my second <coughs> um, uh, I'm done. All right. Whatever whatever you want. Okay. So that gets us into the 20th century. Mm-hmm. Um I think uh, the the McNamara clan has uh, some interesting, and you got to be careful when you say this. When you say someone has an interesting connection to the reservation, uh, yeah,
1: well, yeah, <laughs> but I'll let uh, I'll let Sheriff explain. Uh, um, <clears throat> at the time of the reservation, which had gone on for many years, it was a two or three blocks square area uh, on Second Street. It was the red light district. It's where all the prostitutes uh, plied their trade, so to speak. And it was regulated by the police. And the girls were registered. They had health cards. Um, And it was patrolled very carefully. And so Guy McNamara uh, became police chief in 1915. So in 1917, the government decided to bring a military base in called Camp MacArthur. And they, the only way that they would bring the military base in and the air base, which was Richfield, <clears throat> was if the city shut down the red light district. So that fell on Guy McNamara, the chief of police, and John Dollins, who was the mayor. And so uh, Guy McNamara put out a decree that all prostitutes had to vacate the city limits of Waco by dark on Saturday. And if you read any of the uh, newspaper articles, uh, that's what it says. Mm -hmm. You have to be out of town by dark Saturday. Didn't have a time, but just dark, whatever that was at the time. And uh, any prostitute found within the city limits after dark was going to be arrested and prosecuted. And that's the way it was explained in the newspaper article. So they shut the red light district down, and uh, World War One was raging, you know, overseas. Mm-hmm. And so the U.S. had just gotten involved in the war, and they needed military bases. And so they brought, brought in uh, Camp MacArthur and uh, also uh, Richfield. Yeah. And so... But that's what had to happen in order for them to uh, bring the bases in. Because they didn't want the soldiers. They knew what would happen, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, they, so. so it wasn't really
0: necessarily for higher morality reasons. There were some practical reasons why yeah. they didn't and want it. Syphilis was yeah. the main reason. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That was, yeah, that
1: was a big problem back mm-hmm. then. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah.
2: And there was never prostitution in Waco again. It, 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 <laughs> yeah, dream it, on. It, it, <laughs> <laughs> we,
1: we're dealing with it practically yeah. every day. It's, it's kind of ironic that, you know, here, I'm in law enforcement here, mm-hmm. 100 and, uh, 105 years, 106 years later, we're still dealing with it. Mm-hmm. But yeah. maybe on a little different level. Mm-hmm. Uh, so anyway, it's... Uh, the heart of man. Yeah, yeah. exactly
0: um you know the uh, kind of a turbulent time, the early part of the 20th century there's, there's lots of of, uh, uh, of challenges I think is starting to see an economic decline there's there's greater social unrest and, and one of the uh, events that that uh, that happened were some riot it was a riot out in Lorena
2: Yeah, so there's a revival of the Klan, the Klan which kind of arose uh, post-Reconstruction in the South and then kind of died out. It's back in the 1920s. And uh, as part of that locally, uh, there was a large parade staged in Lorena. Uh, uh, About 4,000 people turn out to watch the Klan uh, march through Lorena there and where they're confronted by the local sheriff. Yes, in 1921. Mm -hmm. And so I think the the sheriff, uh, Bob Buchanan, asked the leaders to identify themselves. They refused. They continued to march. Uh, Buchanan tries to unmask one of the leaders of the Klan, and that's when uh, gunfire broke out. And uh, Buchanan had two deputies with him, sheriff, and you were talking about Uh, Red Burton, uh, who was one of the deputies that was with uh, Sheriff Bob Buchanan at the
1: time. Absolutely. Uh, Red Burton was a very, uh, really wonderful lawman. Uh, He was uh, later on a Texas Ranger, Mm -hmm. and then he was Chief Police of Waco. And I had the uh, honor of meeting him in the late 60s. I believe it was 1968, uh, and I have a picture of my brother Mike and me with Red Burton, and of course he was a elderly gentleman at the time, but uh, my dad was a good friend of Red Burton's, and uh, he would always talk about what a, a tough, good lawman Red Burton was, and also what a good lawman Bob Buchanan was. Uh, those guys were fearless, and they were facing a crowd of several thousand And uh, at one point after the fracas, after the shooting and all, um, it's pretty well documented that uh, Buchanan and Red Burton and maybe another officer or two had to take refuge in a drugstore there in Low because Mm -hmm. the crowd was going to try to kill them all. And uh, it was a very tense, very dangerous situation for the lawmen. And, you know, you think about uh, a crowd – marching and attacking the lawmen, disarming them, shooting one of them, uh, people getting stabbed. Bob McCannon was well within his rights to use his knife and uh, protect himself.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, the play-by-play went something like he, he, like you said, he tries to stop them. They continue to march. He goes up to one of the leaders at the front of the parade, tries to pull off his mask, One of the uh, other Klansmen that has a flag, carrying a flag, hits him over the head, knocks him to the ground, and then um, apparently he's got two pistols. One of the Klansmen grabs one of the pistols, starts shooting him. He pulls a knife and kind of starts stabbing his way out. Burton is immediately jumped on by several other Klansmen. He has his gun drawn, Mm -hmm. sees Buchanan on the ground. He starts shooting. Firing back once he hears uh, Buchanan say that he'd been shot, um, so somehow in that scrum they they were able to 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 get it get enough control to get out of the situation and maybe into the drugstore like you said. Um, uh, there were five people that got stabbed. one you know another a Klansman shot besides Buchanan being shot. Uh, he was shot under the arm, and um, um yeah one one interesting. So a friend of mine here, uh, Charlie Rigney, that uh, you might might mm-hmm. know, um, he's that's his grandfather, and the family history oh, really? is oh. that uh, uh, that that the family has always looked for that second gun to show up somewhere, so they could find out who it was who it was that it took the gun that took the gun and shot him, mm. and uh, to date they have not uh, recovered that gun. Mm.
2: Um, yeah, and and reflective of the political uh mood of the times. I mean, politically, they go after uh, Buchanan. Yeah, they indict and, him for the yeah. murder
0: of yeah. one of the, of the people he stabbed. There was a, a huge outcry. Now, you know, there's some other uh, important Wacoans at the time that were in different places. Pat Neff was actually governor at the time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, his story, I mean, he had been the county prosecutor, I mean, he had been, he was friends with all these guys. Yeah. he had only recently been been elected governor. And so he reached out and was really uh, to the judge and to the county prosecutor here saying, hey, you can have whatever resources you want. He ends up providing uh, the Texas Rangers to be bailiffs for the uh, court proceedings because of, you know, you couldn't have the, the sheriff's deputies couldn't be the bailiffs. And some, of you know, his political opponent was a constable, so the constables couldn't be the bailiffs. So mm-hmm. the compromise was to bring in the rangers. And uh, so it's great you see you see Neff in the background trying to support Buchanan. He even gets the uh, attorney general to to make a ruling to give an opinion. You know we see that today still, the Texas attorney general give an opinion on whether you would should be able to allowed to wear a mask in a parade. And he came back and said. No, constant, you know, you, according to the Texas Constitution, you shouldn't be able to do that. Hmm. Um, I, I was thinking of a modern equivalent for this. Yeah. And I think we, we've we seen that recently with uh, something like Antifa, right? These groups that want to hide behind a mask and go out in public and create, create havoc, create intimid- mayhem, yeah. intimidation, intimidation. Um, uh, you know, change public opinion. Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, it's very similar. Yeah. Yeah. Really yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Um,
2: so state support, but also local support. Another McNamara comes in. The, the John McNamara that you mentioned earlier, uh, Sheriff as a supporter.
0: Yeah. They, um, they, uh, uh, his bond, he had to get bonded out of jail. Mm-hmm. And uh, the some of the supporters were the, the mayor, John Dollins, Uh, John McNamara, the former county attorney and the former sheriff, came in support of Buchanan
1: when he had this huge public outcry against him. So, Mm -hmm. yeah. There was a lot of of sympathy uh, toward the Klan at the time. Mm -hmm. And that was a sad part about it because you had those supporters in the Klan against law enforcement. Mm -hmm. And so Buchanan really had his back to the wall, uh, you know, with these charges on him. Yeah and, so, ju- and
2: just so you'll know the popular support of the Klan dies out in the late 20s I mean it, it you know it, it burns yeah. fast and yeah. quick yeah. and then you're yep. gone yeah mm-hmm.
1: um very interesting uh, very brutal time there mhm yeah Yep. Really. yeah um okay here's a here's a
0: A couple that live in infamy, even today. (laughs) Yeah, a uh, lot of folks uh, don't know they have a Waco connection. Modern legend. So Uh, Bonnie and Clyde have a huge Waco connection.
2: mm -hmm. Yeah, so uh, a couple of times. So Clyde Barrow is arrested uh, in in town in 1926. And as a juvenile, spends a couple of days in jail. He's arrested again in 1929 and let off the hook then. Uh, and then he's arrested, well, he's transferred in uh, after another arrest into McClendon County Jail on March the 3rd, 1930, uh, pleading guilty to seven charges that included the theft of William Cameron's car.
1: I bet that was a nice car. I'm just thinking. <laughs> I'm sure it was.
0: Well, uh, and, I, and I remember reading somewhere, you know, a couple, of, you know, one of the things that made the, the Clyde's gang successful is they would steal nice cars with big engines. Uh-huh. They knew that they knew the, uh, the the value of the getaway. and so I could see them being drawn. I'm sure Mr. Cameron had a very nice vehicle.
1: Oh absolutely. And when uh, Ford came out with the V8, um, that's what their car of choice was because it could outrun almost any car on the road. And I believe that either Bonnie or Clyde wrote Ford a thank you letter. <laughs> Uh, you know they were taunting police and yeah. uh, they were just on such a crazy spree you know murder spree mm-hmm. but I've always heard that I've never seen the letter but it, <laughs> well that's uh, supposedly he thanked Ford for the Ford V8 which came out I believe in 33 something like that
0: it, and similarly like, they they would arm themselves. In, in ways beyond what the normal law enforcement had. Yeah. They would they they broke into uh, armories at National Guards stations or you know in in the Midwest and would get uh, B eight bars uh, British or I'm sorry Browning automatic rifles yeah. which shot a big thirty out six
1: round and could could go uh, automatic. Yeah. They they used all kind of weapons, but they did like top of the line. They liked the Thompson submachine guns, which mm-hmm. you know shot a forty five ACP. Mm-hmm. But the big one was the BARS that mm-hmm. shot the thirty six, like you mm-hmm. you said, and uh, that would d- either go completely through a vehicle or disar- uh, disable it if they shot the engine. Yeah, yeah. and yeah. and at the and time, those, you know, law enforcement they were probably carrying thirty eight
0: revolvers. .38s, yeah. yeah. Most
1: mm-hmm. of them. Uh, all were carrying the thirty-eights. Every once in a while, you had somebody carry a .45 automatic, but your standard police gun, even when I went into law enforcement, was a revolver. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, either a .38 or a .357. But mm-hmm. back then, thirty eight was a main gun, and it was just underpowered. From yeah, the pea shooter compared to a, absolutely. Yeah, those mm-hmm. rifles in the.
2: Um. Well, speaking of guns, so March third, he's transferred in to McLennan County. Uh, Bonnie comes and visits him several times while yeah. he's yeah, yeah he's on in, trial in the mclennan County Jail yep uh, and in one of those visits the, the, old, she, jail. the, the old, old jail the old jail behind yeah. the courthouse yeah yeah and then uh, on one of those visits she passes him a gun
0: and, 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 and rumor has it she had it uh, hidden in her bra. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And that, so yeah, that makes sense. They, they embrace, they do an embrace and she tells him where the, where the gun is. And you know, while they're embracing, he dislodges it, puts it, you know, hides it from cause you know, they're being watched by the uh, jailers. At the, so that's how he sneaks it in.
2: And they uh, break out. So, I mean, uh, Clyde breaks out, of uh, prison, steal a couple of cars and, Yep. And leave the county.
0: Yep, has a couple cellmates. The jailer comes to bring a glass of milk to one of them, mm-hmm. and and uh, the jailers were not armed, and so they got the drop on him, locked him in the jail cell, and then went you know went downstairs, and there was another uh, jailer they had to get past, but they you know they got the drop on him too, and there they go.
1: Mm-hmm. Probably uh, Bonnie and Clyde kill more police officers than any other outlaws, and I believe they killed a total of 11 or 12 people and like nine of them were police officers. And when they left here, it's my understanding that they killed a detective or two in Hillsborough and just Mm -hmm. uh, when they would see police, they'd just open fire on them. And so uh, they had them all outgunned most of the time. Yeah. And so, well, and from his
0: break here, he did get caught again a few mm -hmm. days later up in Ohio and, uh, the, the uh, McLennan County Sheriff went up and retrieved him personally and brought him back. And then that was um, when Clyde got uh, sent to Eastham um, Prison. Is that, is that down near Houston, I believe?
1: Sheriff, where's Easton Prison from? Yeah. East Ham is down in that area. East Ham, yeah. Uh, yeah. At the time, most of your units were down there close to Huntsville in okay. that area. Now yeah. they're all over the state, but back then... But it's down yeah. in there. Yeah. Okay.
0: And, and apparently it was his experiences there that really took a, a bad kid and took him to a whole different level of, of bad. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. um, um, and then, you know, it was after that for those who've seen movies or documentaries yeah. that, uh, you know, he eventually gets paroled from there, hooks up with Bonnie. They go on the, their bigger crime spree and eventually get, uh, uh, gunned down in Louisiana, in Louisiana by uh, Frank Hammer. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Well, they did kill a prison guard, and he teamed up with uh, a really bad, dangerous guy named Raymond Hamilton in TDC. So he was running with Hamilton uh, for a good while there. And uh, there's a gun collector here in uh, Waco that has the thirty eight that Bonnie had on her person when they were killed. It was in the car, and it's believed to be the same gun that she has on in the picture. And I've seen the gun, matched it up, and it's all documented. Hmm. And a museum had it and then said they didn't want anything to do with Bonnie and Clyde, you know, because they thought it would uh, show them in a good light. So mm-hmm. they put it up for auction. And so this guy here, he's a friend of mine. He has the Bonnie and Clyde pistol. Oh, was wow. Bonnie's pistol. Wow. <laughs> and, uh, it's got the uh, the fake uh, stag grips uh, on it that she put on it. She wanted to spiff it up a little bit. So mm-hmm. anyway, it's mm. just an interesting thing. Bonnie Parker's pistol is right here in Waco, mm. or one of her pistols. She had a bunch of them. Mm. Yeah.
0: Anyway. And I saw references that she actually had family in Waco. Like when she was uh, visiting Clyde in jail, she was staying with some some extended family that lived in Waco. Mm. I couldn't find any more information about them, but – yeah. Um, okay, so let's let's fast forward to so, uh, actually several years to a, a story um, that uh, our listeners may be more familiar with, Kenneth McDuff. Mm.
1: Yes, Kenneth McDuff was probably no, without a doubt, the most brutal, sadistic killer that uh, I ever dealt with in my entire career, mm. and. Um, I knew about him because my father, uh, T.P. McNamara, was the deputy U.S. Marshal here at the time. McDuff killed three teenagers in Everman. And uh, he was living in uh, Rosebud. And so he and a guy named Roy Dale Green uh, were riding around up in the Fort Worth area in a town called Everman. They went to a ball diamond late in the evening, and there was Three kids um, standing out by a car, uh, two teenage boys that were 16 and their 16 year old cousin, Marie Sullivan. And so uh, McDuff takes a pistol and kidnaps all three of them, puts them in the trunk of their car, and he drove them out into the country, he and Roy Neil Green, and uh, he opens the trunk, got a Marie Sullivan out. And then he shot both of the boys uh, in the head and kills both of them in the trunk of the car. And uh, he backs the car up into a fence on a gravel road. Then he takes Marie Sullivan uh, to another location where he horribly brutalizes this little girl. Uh, he even used a broken broomstick on her. And then afterwards, uh, Roy Dale Green holds her feet and McDuff sits on her chest and breaks her throat with a broomstick. So uh, he eventually was known as the broomstick killer. But uh, he comes back to Rosebud, uh, and then uh, two days later, uh, Roy Dale is riding around with uh, another couple, and it comes on the radio that these kids have been found in Everman Brutally murdered, and uh, he falls apart, <clears throat> and uh, tells the other couple in the car that uh, McDuff did it, and he said I was with him, so they immediately drove to the sheriff's office, and uh, Roy Dale Green made a statement that he was there when McDuff had killed these kids. Oh wow! Anyway, when Sheriff Larry Pampl- uh Sheriff Brady Pamplin was told about the murders. He got with the sheriff in Robertson County where uh, McDuff was believed to have been. He had a date with a girl. And um, so Larry Pamplin, who was Brady's son, uh, Larry and I were in the same grade. So mm-hmm. I'm in Baylor at the time. Uh, Larry's in, uh, I believe, um, college down in Huntsville. <clears throat> he just happened to be home at the time. So they all get armed, and uh, the two sheriffs and Larry uh, wait for McDuff to come home and bring this girl back, mm-hmm. hoping and praying that mm-hmm. she's still alive. So McDuff does; he drives up in her driveway, and so uh, Sheriff Sonny Elliott. How, uh, how old was
0: he at the time? Was he a young man? I mean, I guess he had to been
1: probably <clears throat> in his twenties. Time he was twenty. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. Nineteen sixty-six. He and I are uh, McDuff and I are two weeks apart in age, mm. so he was twenty years old at the time and uh, already a brutal, sadistic killer. Mm. And so when he drove up in the driveway, uh, the sheriff stood up and we're going to shoot him. And he had uh, this girl, his date, sitting next to him, like that's the way everybody did back right. in the sixties. Old, old get, bench seat cars. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. exactly. They do that now. No, and so anyway, they couldn't. Open fire on him, and he threw it in reverse, and the chase was on. Um, they chased, chased him down the street of Bremond, and so that car broke down. He jumps out of that, commandeers a pickup, and so they chase him in that, recover the girl safely, and uh, they shoot the tires and the engine out of the uh, pickup, and so they capture him. And he is tried uh, in Everman, and uh, he got the death sentence. And so he was on death row uh, for a lot of years. And then when the Supreme Court decided the death penalty was cruel and unusual the way it was applied, he was uh, commuted to life. And then later on, he was paroled out. And so... We couldn't believe in 1989 when we found out that he, he had paroled out. Mm. Um, I called uh, Sheriff Larry Pamplin. He had become sheriff after his dad retired. His dad was sheriff there almost 30 years. So then Larry ran for sheriff and got it. And so I said, you're just not going to believe this. I said, they parole Kenneth MacDuff. And he said, no, there's no way. <clears throat> and I said, well, they have. So we found out where he was. And this is the sick part of the story. He was in going to class at TSTC on a state grant. We were paying for this low-life serial killer's education. And uh, so <clears throat> my brother and I went out and talked to the police chief there on TSTC campus. It was TSTI at the time and told them, have you ever heard of Kenneth McDuff? And they go, no, we've never heard of him. Well, it had happened 20 years before. Yeah. That police, those police officers, were some of them may not have even been born yet. They were real young. And I said, you've got a serial killer sitting in class out here by somebody's daughter, somebody's son. I said, he'll kill boys, he'll kill girls. I said, he's a horrible, dangerous, dangerous criminal. So they were kind of watching him. Then he threatens to kill this kid uh, in uh, Rosebud while he's out on parole. They put him back in prison. They should have put him in for life. And he paroles. They release him three months later after he threatens to kill this other kid knowing he's a triple murderer. So he's right back in Waco. And uh, so anybody that was in the Waco, Texas area from 1989 until we caught him or got him caught in 1992 past McDuff on the street. And it is very scary because if you're a young lady, you're lucky by the grace of God you're still alive because he was killing women. Um, <clears throat> he was up and down Waco Drive, Valley Mills Drive. He was all over this place. He was going from Waco to Austin to Dallas um, he ran, even ran a police roadblock with a girl tied up in his truck and got away. And we found her seven years later buried uh, on a creek bank, uh, on 933 up toward Golson. Um, he just absolutely was pulling these girls off the street wherever he could find them. Poor little Melissa Northrop working at the Quick Pack on I-35, uh, he went in there, she was working the midnight shift, and kidnapped her, took her to Dallas, uh, brutalized her, and killed her Threw her in a gravel pit. Uh, she was recovered uh, two or three months later. Anyway, he was just on a rampage, and uh, we were frantic. We formed a task force to try to catch him of US marshals. Uh, we had uh, police officers of all kinds, deputy sheriffs, Waco police. Uh, And uh, we had our helicopters up every day, and uh, we had the rangers involved. We had the federal agents at ATF. I mean, it was an incredible effort. We were trying to catch this guy before he killed more people. And so we realized after about three or four weeks of really, really big, intense manhunts all over not just the county but the state— that he was not here because we were arresting his cohorts. Uh, One guy got five years federal time for having one 22 bullet. That was his friend. Uh, So we were hitting these people really hard. And we knew that if they knew where he was, they would turn him in. And they told us that said we can't fade the heat for this guy. Mm -hmm. So anyway, we reached out to uh, Unsolved Mysteries that program with Jack mm-hmm. Palance. And then we uh, reached out to Unsolved Mysteries uh, with John Walsh. Uh, yeah, so America's Most America's Wanted. America's Most Wanted. Yeah. And uh, sent all the information on McDuff to America's Most Wanted and Unsolved Mysteries. So they aired Unsolved Mysteries on Wednesday, America's Most Wanted on Friday. We got a call Monday from Kansas City, U.S. Marshals and Police, said, we think... He may be up here, and we think he may be a guy named Richard Fowler that's driving on a, uh, on a trash truck. And some of his coworkers saw the, the series on him and said, man, it's got to be him. And so anyway, we sent fingerprints immediately to Kansas City, and uh, they called back in about an hour and said, it is him. He is up here. And we just, we couldn't believe it. We had probably 50 or 60 lawmen in the U.S. Marshal's office here on all these different teams trying to find him. So I can't tell you the feeling when we Mm. got that call. Mm. We called everybody in. I mean, there were people screaming, lawmen, some of them were crying, going, my gosh, you know, we got to get him. And so they set up on him. Uh, He had a uh, trash route and very appropriately working on a trash truck mm-hmm. and um, not to disparage them but he was he was a bigger piece of trash than anything they were hauling mm-hmm. and so anyway they set up on it and he was arrested and then that they called us and said we got him so they sent a U.S. Marshal's jet from down to pick us up and so I took uh eight or nine other officers with me, U.S. attorneys, ATF guys, took a ranger, took uh, Austin Homicide, took a uh, narcotics guy from Temple, just right there on the street. I said, go with me to Kansas City tonight. Go with me. And everybody, nobody turned me down. And so we flew in there and uh, interrogated him that that night. And of course, he, he wouldn't up anything about the Anybody, he was laughing about stabbing people in prison, and he held his knife, and the other guy, he held his knife, and he had the reach on him, and he was just a brutal, cold-blooded guy. And uh, we started quizzing him about where he was on Christmas Day, which is the day that he kidnapped Colleen Reed, the beautiful little girl washing her car down there in Austin. Mm-hmm. And uh, he said, "I don't know where I was at Christmas." And I said, "Sure, everybody knows where you were at Christmas Day." And he said, not me. Mm -hmm. I said, yeah, you do. Let me refresh your memory. Mm -hmm. And so I kind of refreshed his memory that he was driving around Austin and we'd already gotten information from the guy that was with him Mm -hmm. that uh, he was trying to kidnap girls down there. Mm -hmm. And uh, at that time he backed in a corner and we shut the interview down and we flew him back the next day. And uh, there was a crowd at the airport uh, waiting to try to kill him. I mean, they were screaming and yelling at him. Yeah. And uh, on the way back, I looked at the, I shouldn't say this, but I looked at the emergency exit on the plane, and I said, you know, I would sure love to open that and throw him out at 30,000 feet. Yeah. Let him mm. think about it. It'd take him about six minutes to hit the ground. Anyway, so we got him back to the federal courthouse, and there was another huge... Uh, crowd there screaming and cursing him and so uh, there's a very famous picture I say famous it went uh, nationwide and it's a U.S. Marshal holding the crowd back with a machine gun and my brother and I walking behind him having to protect Kenneth Macduff taking him into the courthouse mm. and uh, it's a very compelling picture mm-hmm. and so anyway that's uh, He got the death sentence, uh, got two of them. He was uh, convicted of uh, killing two different girls. And uh, I witnessed his execution in November of 1998, seven years after he'd killed these people. Hmm. And uh, he never apologized, never anything uh, cold, evil, till the very end, uh, cursed God um, when the chaplain would, try To get him to save his soul, he mm-hmm. said you fix and be executed. You need to save your soul, get right with God. And he just cursed God. Mm. So he is uh, the kind of man that it is a pleasure to execute. Yeah. yeah. And uh, so, anyway, uh, he didn't even have anybody to uh, claim his body buried in the prison yard down there. He's just a number now. Mm. Is it is it
2: likely that there were uh, cases that, that you? Couldn't connect to. Oh yeah, I mean, yeah,
1: A- absolutely. Yeah. We believe that he killed fifteen to twenty people, and we've got close to fifteen names, uh, people that just vanished that knew him. And uh, there was uh, three people that were in Kansas City when he was up there. Three women that mm-hmm. uh, uh, vanished. A couple of them have never been found. One lady was brutally murdered. Uh, she'd called her son said there's a big tall cowboy looking guy in here. Uh, I'm scared. Hmm. Her son went up there, got there within five minutes. Her purse mm-hmm. is there full of money. She's gone. Uh, they found her floating in the river uh, mm-hmm. a few days later. Mm-hmm. And uh, we ran search warrants on his apartment up there. And it was like uh, a slaughterhouse. He had knives, ski masks, duct tape, ropes, everything you need to kidnap people. So. Mm. Anyway, uh, wow. hopefully uh, as we speak, he's burning in hell.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, let's uh, take a bit of a break. Thank you, Sheriff McNamara, for being with us. Uh, we're going to call this Part 1 of Criminal Crossings uh, for uh, the Waco History Podcast. We will be back with uh, Sheriff McNamara for Part 2, and so please turn, tune into that also. Cross the Brazos
3: and Waco, right
0: Thanks for listening to the Waco History Podcast. Like what you heard? Subscribe, rate, and review our show on iTunes so we can reach more listeners. You can find show notes and info on every episode at wacohistorypodcast.com and more info on Waco's past at wacohistory.org. Our theme music, used with permission, is Cross the Brazos at Waco, performed by the late Billy Walker. For more info on Billy's music, go to billywalker.com. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.